0: All right, I'm going over today, I'm just telling you right now, not like you're shocked or anything, but I am going over my time, Um, Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, we're looking at verses 1 through 7, this is part 2, we picked up this message last week, kids glad to have you in here with us, so hope you will be able to draw something from this message. That's page 948 if you're using one of those blue church Bibles that are located underneath the seats around you in case you don't have a copy of God's Word to use this morning. So let me, um, this is part two. We started like last week, as I said. Let me begin with a quote that I found as I was moving through this material by one commentator, and this is what he said. It is only a slight exaggeration to say that the history of of the interpretation of Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, which is the section we're looking at, is the history of attempts to avoid what seems to be its plain meaning. Okay? In other words, they see the plain meaning, and maybe it doesn't sit right with them, and so they say maybe it means something else. It doesn't mean something else. It means what it means, and the plain meaning is clear, and that's what I'm trying to uh, help you see this morning, and we'll be looking at this again next week. But, beloved, listen, what I have found, I want to talk to you just about that idea in and of itself, seeing the text uh, and then having it speak to you and then not wanting to hear what it's saying. What I have found to be true is that, and you may have found this to be true as well, is that people, including Christian people, including us, are when they are made uncomfortable or are personally challenged by what seems to be the plain meaning of a portion of Scripture, that those people sometimes, instead of carefully and humbly wrestling with it and working through it and then bringing themselves under it, instead of doing that, they choose instead to quickly push aside the plain meaning of the text and uh, seek rather than to find an interpretation that they are more comfortable with or does not require them to change their minds or their actions, or does not challenge their long-held or cherished views on a particular matter. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, beloved, this is really a temptation for all of us. And we must resist it. We must resist it. We must allow, I've said this before, I'll say it again, we must allow the Word of God in its entirety... From Genesis to Revelation, to mold us and change us, we desperately need it, need it to let it correct our thinking, our incorrect and unbiblical thinking and attitudes. We must let it rule over every area of our lives, no matter how difficult or challenging that may be at times, okay? You with me? I can assure you that if you do that, you will not regret it. You won't regret it. And in the end, you will be truly blessed by God for it. I was thinking of this passage in 2 Timothy. You know it. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Let me, let me read it to you again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? Teaching and for reproof. Reproof is rebuke for wrong behavior or belief. It's rebuke. The scriptures bring rebuke into your life, okay? It's it's profitable for correction. It writes you. It puts you back on the right course, on God's course, okay? And for training in righteousness. That's what the scriptures are for. Why? That the man of God, the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know that passage, right? Okay, now here's a question. When is the last time you were reproved or corrected by God's word? Just just, it's you to ask yourself that question. Think think it through. Uh, If it's been a while, then may I suggest to you you're not reading it. I get reproved every week as I read the Word of God as I encounter it. It it rebukes me for wrong behavior or belief. It it corrects me. It puts me on the right course. That's what it does, beloved. If that's not happening in your life, you're not growing. And you're not really coming, you're not really encountering the word of God in a very real way. Or maybe you're just not recalling what you've read in the past. You're just not bringing it to mind. Because as you do, guess what it does? It reproves you. It corrects you. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing, beloved. We should desire that. Okay? That is the means that God uses to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus Christ. You should welcome that into your life. Or it could be if you're not being reproved or corrected, you're reading the word, but you're not really accepting what it's saying. Huh? Let's read the text now. That's the intro to the text. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, the Apostle Paul writes these words. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Last week, we considered verse 1. In the first part of verse 2, I'm going to do some review, and then we're simply going to pick up where we left off uh, last week. So the command in the first part of verse 1 is really straightforward, just It's straightforward. It's simple. Everyone, every person is to willingly subject or submit themselves or place themselves under the authority of the governing authorities or the secular rulers that they find themselves presently living under. Okay, And this submission, it's that simple. It's that simple. And this submission that God's word commands should be, should be of the utmost importance to the Christian who understands that the God that they love and serve is actually the one who stands behind every governmental authority whom the Christian encounters. For those governing authorities, those human rulers who exist, have been instituted by God according to verse 1. There's no escape from that, that meaning of the passage. That is what it means. That is what Paul is saying. Although some have tried to escape that meaning because they don't like what it's saying. This is why it has been said, and I agree with it wholeheartedly, that in light of what the Bible teaches... Christianity, I said this last week, Christianity and good citizenship should go together. They should go together. See, to be a bad citizen or to to be someone who opposes or resists the governing authorities is really to be someone who opposes God. Since he is the one who appointed those authorities. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration. It's not a perfect illustration but maybe it'll help, babysitter, you bring the babysitter over, right, Uh, mom and dad, you get the babysitter, you're the authority in the house, mom and dad, but you're leaving the house, and you do not want to leave the house without authority, because you know what could happen if there is no authority in that house, you understand what I'm saying, so you bring in an authority, and you give that person authority in that home, right, right, your children, you may even say something like this. You may even say, uh, little miss, uh, whatever her name is here, she is in charge why mom and dad are gone. Right? You might, right? That's kind of the picture. You, you are placing them in charge. Now, the child could say, uh, uh, you know, and you hear this sometimes with kids, you're not my mom. You can't tell me what to do. Right? You know what I'm saying? Uh, you just, boom, you know, it just is... You don't actually do that, but in your mind, it might run through your, yeah, what do you mean? Be quiet. I'm an an adult. I'll tell you what to do. But that may even happen in that situation, that babysitting situation, right? The babysitter would then say, yes, I am not your mother. That is true, but I am in charge. Your mom left me in charge. Your dad left me in charge, so I have authority in this situation. You must obey. It's like that. It's it's not perfectly like that, but it's like that in a sense. And it's for the good of the children that that authority is left there. No authority. You know what happens. They'll burn the house down. Chaos. That's what happens without authority, without government. So then how can a Christian, listen, so based on that, then how can a Christian who understands that fact, that God is the one who has instituted these this authority, these governing authorities, how can they live in opposition to the governing authorities? Because in a sense, when those children are in that home and they're saying, we're not going to listen to you, babysitter, what they're really saying then is, we're not going to listen to our mother and father. Because mom and dad left them in charge. You, you get it? Beloved, let me put it this way. Based on God's word, phrases like, by the way, I did that illustration just because the kids were going to be in here. Did you get that message, children? When mommy and daddy leave a babysitter behind, you need to obey. Like as if it was mommy and daddy. All right, there you go. You can thank me later. Beloved, let me, let me put it this way. Phrases like law-abiding or model citizen, model citizen should be able to be used honestly to describe us who profess to be Christians. And if that can't be said of you, or whenever it can't be said of you,
1: then you need to confess your sin
0: and repent and commit yourself to conforming your life to the truth of Romans 13. That's what you must do, beloved. That's what I must do. That's what you must do. We must willingly submit ourselves to the governing authorities wherever those authorities intersect with our lives. Because it is absolutely the right thing to do. It is God's revealed will for us. And that means in part, beloved, that we must faithfully comply with the various and numerous laws of our land, whether or not we particularly like or prefer them. Huh? Yeah. I'm sure when, you know, there's laws in your home that your kids don't particularly like or prefer. Huh? And do you expect them to obey them? Uh Uh-huh. You think God
1: is any different?
0: And we must humbly yield ourselves to those who exercise the law or exercise their God-given rule over us. That's what we must do, beloved. Uh, As an example, as a church, we, according to the laws of the city of not just Fontana, but all the cities around here, we must obtain a conditional use permit in order to use a facility. This one has one already, but if we are going to get a building and occupy it for the purposes of, of meeting together for religious education, and, and what we do as a church, we must get what is called a conditional use permit. And that means I have to go through the, the task of going to the city and paying them a lot of money and waiting a long time for this process to work its way through with the potential that they could deny it. It also means It also means that For instance, part of that conditional use permit requires that I have so many parking spots for every seat that I might have in the uh, sanctuary. And if I don't have those parking spots, I cannot get my conditional use permit approved. Uh, Do I like it? I don't like it. I don't love it. I don't love it. I don't love it. I'd rather just be able to uh, rent a place and move in and pack in and we'll just put the cars wherever we can figure it out and we'll start operating, right? But that is not the law. And so, unfortunately, beloved, unfortunately, some churches, some churches, I believe, um, bypass that because it's just too much work, and they don't want to deal with it, and they just move in and kind of go undercover. Uh, And I assume they probably do it under the guise that, hey, we're a church, and we're, you know, living out the gospel. Living out the gospel includes obeying Jesus Christ and his word. So... We will comply with the law. You see? That's an example of it. I could go on carpooling. You know what I'm talking about, the carpooling? I am telling you. You've probably seen this, but there is like uh, uh, ugly disobedience going on right now. It's like those double yellow lines don't mean anything anymore. It used to be, you know, every once in a while people might... Every once in a while, like when traffic was bad, you'd see someone like, I can't take this anymore, and they just go into the carpool lane well, when they're not supposed to duck, cross the double yellow lines. Now it's like, oh, just in and out and in and out, and you don't even have to have multiple people in the car. One's fine. I mean, one's fine. I don't even know what the lane's for anymore. <laughs> I am blown away. Our society, just again, this is my personal experience, just here on the 210, 10, 15, I mean, our society is just, forget it, man. I can do what I want when I want. That's a dumb law. Why can't I cross the double yellow lines? Because it's a law, and there's a reason for it. There's good reasons for it, but it doesn't matter. They don't have to justify themselves to you. They're the governing authorities. It's the law. Yeah, but I'm going to be late to work. Then get up earlier. Don't break the law. Okay. Now, as I mentioned last week, oh, one more thing, one more thing. (laughs) I, uh, I was thinking about this. All right, so we think about traffic laws, parking laws, right? You're like, don't park here. Please, I'm only going to be here 10 minutes. That's I can park here. What that means is I won't get caught, right? But it says, it says yeah, she's laughing because I did this. We, uh, <laughs> the new place where my daughter moved, it's ridiculous. They give you like, there's like six visitor spots, and you have to drive around for four hours to try to find a spot. I'm like, no, there's an open spot. I'm taking it. Yes, that's why she's laughing right now. That was wrong. I was only going to be there for five minutes. It was wrong. That's not the law. The law says you have to park. Well, the law there for that particular spot says park in the visitor spot. So that's what I should have done. Now listen. Stop laughing. Um, I I don't mind being transparent, confessing my sin. I'm a sinner too. So listen. But listen, we can't just say I'm a sinner and then just keep doing it. That's not the right response. But here's the thing. You might think, that's no big deal. That's no big deal. I get what you're saying. You know, it's just a parking spot. What's that? Or maybe even just, there's nobody around. It's safe. I can go into the carpool lane or something like that, right? No big deal. Here's what you do. We, what happens to people, I've, I've watched this happen. You say, it's no big deal. You develop though, while you're doing that, a habit of disobedience, a habit of rebellion. So even though it's a small matter, maybe a small matter, maybe the consequences aren't that serious. In your heart, in your mind, you're developing that bad habit. And so, when it comes time that you're tempted to violate a more serious law, one that has more heavy consequences, your heart, you've trained your heart and your mind already to move in the way of disobedience. Don't do it. Obey in the small things. Train yourself, discipline yourself, say no to the flesh so that when the big things come, you're ready to do the right thing, and to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. I will. (laughs) Uh, As I mentioned, (laughs) but I appreciate the encouragement. As I mentioned last week, I want to point this out again. Commenting on what it means to submit. Commenting on what it means to submit. One Christian scholar wrote this. To submit is to recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy, to acknowledge as a general rule that certain people or institutions have authority over us. It is this general posture toward government that Paul demands here of Christians. That's here in Romans 13. And such a posture will usually, usually demand that we obey what the governing authorities tell us to do. Now, He said that such a posture will usually, right, usually, that means generally but not always, uh, not absolutely, demand that we obey what the governing authorities tell us to do. Why? Because as uh, we started to talk about last week, under some circumstances, under some, uh, disobedience to the governing authorities will be necessary for us as Christians. In fact, we actually have a duty as believers to disobey governing authorities if and when, listen, obedience, this is when we have a duty to disobey, if and when obedience to governing authorities would require us to be disobedient to our God, who is the ultimate authority. Okay? That is the exception. So one writer says this, government It's the same guy, by the way. Government does not have absolute rights over the believer. For government, like every human institution, is subordinate to God himself. The ultimate claim of God, who stands at the peak of the hierarchy of relationships in which the Christian is placed, is always assumed. It's always assumed. So, real quick, back to that picture. Babysitter. That babysitter has derived authority in that home. That authority, ultimately, the ultimate authority in that home is mom and dad. So babysitter has authority. But what if babysitter asks the children to do something that they knew was absolutely forbidden by mom and dad? Would they have a right to disobey? Yeah, you better tell them to. Right? You tell them to. You know what I'm talking about, right? If the babysitter ever says this, you don't have to obey that. Okay. Why is that? Because ultimately the ultimate authority is mom and dad in that home, okay? This means then that Christians may continue to submit to a particular government acknowledging their subordination to it generally, even as they in obedience to a higher authority refuse to do in a given instance what the government requires. Okay? So, as an example of what I call justifiable disobedience to the governing authorities, and that's what we brought up last week, if the government were to make a law forbidding us from ever speaking about Jesus Christ or making disciples of Christ, then it would be our duty to disobey or refuse to comply with that law because God, the higher and ultimate authority, has explicitly commanded us to do that very thing. And we looked at that, Acts 4:18 through 20 in chapter 5, 27 through 29 and verses 40 through 42. the apostles, that's exactly what the apostles had to do. They had to disobey in that particular situation, the governing authorities who were telling them not to preach Jesus. But listen, listen. In that particular scenario, that doesn't mean that because of the government's, let's say that happened, because of the government's outright rejection of Jesus or their outlawing of our proclamation of him, that we are then allowed to refuse to comply with any and every other law that the government has put over us, or altogether refuse to submit ourselves to that government. Or pick and choose which laws we're gonna obey or not obey. You know? So here we got a a God hating government. You know what? I'm not gonna pay my taxes. No, beloved, you are not allowed to do such things.
1: Not according to the text.
0: But rather, in that particular instance, we we would simply not obey what the governing authorities were telling us to do in regard to the proclamation of Jesus Christ and the making of disciples. But in every other area, we would submit. Additionally, our disobedience, and I said this last week, it should be done in a way that it it demonstrates or Or that it doesn't demonstrate a spirit of defiance or hostility. It shouldn't be that, but rather our disobedience in situations where obedience to governing authorities would require us to be disobedient to our God. It should be done in such a way that it simply demonstrates our unwavering submissiveness to God. There is a difference. And uh, let me say this too, while it is true that God has instituted all the governing authorities that exist and given them power to rule, that doesn't mean that God is responsible for everything they might do, or all their actions, or even that all their actions will be good. Obviously, Uh, consider our own
1: government, slavery, segregation, Abortion. Homosexual marriage. Hmm? One writer commented this. We must speak
0: against sin. Against injustice. Against immorality. And ungodliness with fearless dedication. But we must do it within the framework of civil law, and with respect for civil authorities. We are to be a godly society, doing good and living peaceably within an ungodly society. That's the mandate, beloved. And because of sin, my friends, human government will never be perfect. It will never be perfect. There's a government coming that will be but no human government will be ever if you think that's coming that utopia is coming you're you're wrong i corrected myself right there you're wrong. you're wrong you're wrong that's not correct uh It is safe to say that that every single government is far from perfection, far from it. But nevertheless, they have been ordained or instituted by God. And as we will see when we look at verses 3 and 4, they serve an important purpose and are an essential component in God's divine plan for fallen mankind. Yes, they are. All of them. Uh, There was a uh, Scottish pastor who uh, lived in the late 18th and early 19th century with his brother. He established 85 churches in Scotland and Ireland, and um, that's just a little bit about him. But he had this to say about government. He said this, The world, ever since the fall, has been in such a state of corruption and depravity that without the powerful obstacle presented by civil government to the selfish and malignant passions of man or men, it would be better to live among the beasts of the force than in human society. As soon as its restraints are removed, man shows himself in his real character. There is a reason for government, beloved. Even the distaste- distasteful ones, even the ones that reject God outright, still uh, carry out God's purposes in this way protecting mankind to one degree or another, uh, preventing chaos, uh, restraining murder and rape and these kind of things. But even though human government serves an important purpose and is an institution established by God, it is also true that all human governments, to one degree or another, they suffer from corruption, right? And it was true as well with the Roman government. That existed in Paul's day, and yet, we must acknowledge that even in that situation, the Apostle Paul still said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Okay? That was the historical context. Roman government. Certainly not a God-honoring, Jesus-loving, or Christian government in any sense of the imagination or word way. Now, let's, uh, we're going to kind of try to do this quickly but I wanted to, because I want to wrap this up and then come back to verses 3 and 4 and maybe the rest of the text next week. But uh, let's consider consider a few more specific situations where we would necessarily have to disobey our governing authorities, okay? Because I think it's important to at least consider that up front. If our government were to forbid us from worshiping our God or demand us to worship some God of their imagination, uh, because there's only one true God, beloved, or worship the state, or a government leader as God, to say in effect, Caesar is Lord, we would necessarily then have to disobey. Why? Because God, the ultimate authority, requires us to worship him and him alone. See? That's how this works. So uh, we see that in Deuteronomy 5, 7, right? It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Is the command of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's all for him. It's all to be devoted to him and no one else. Even in Matthew chapter 4, here's the words of Christ when he's confronted with Satan who's trying to tempt him to worship him. Satan, he says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, Satan said to Christ, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he's taken that from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Jesus is. So, when King Nebuchadnezzar, the ruling authority of Babylon, demanded that all his subjects were to fall down and worship his golden image. Kids, do you know this story? Some of you know this story, you've heard it. Hopefully, some of you adults know it too. There were some men of God living under His authority, under the king, who were brought before the king because they would not bow and worship His golden image. Huh? Um, uh, Veggie did a really good. Uh, um, yeah, it's good. Get it if you want to check that out. Veggie Tales does a good. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you think I'm nuts right now, but Veggie Tales is really good. Uh, uh, they depicted this story, and, and that is where we're going to pick up the story right now in the book of Daniel. I want to read it to you to show you that when I say we can we can disobey here, we have biblical justification for it. I'm not just picking and choosing. Okay, so Daniel chapter three verse fourteen. Nebuchadnezzar uh, answered and said to them, "Is it true?" He said to these men, I was talking about men of God, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, because these are the instructions he had given previously, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Watch this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Listen to me. Don't read disrespect into that. Okay? He's not, they're not saying, You see the hand? They're not doing that. They're not, that was bad, I've tried it before, never can I get it right. They're not doing that. Uh, they're basically saying. We don't need to talk about this anymore. Uh, Our minds are made up. We cannot bow. We have no defense to offer you. What are we going to say? That's what they're doing. So sometimes like we pour kind of what we want into the text. It's not there. This is not disrespect. Verse 17, if this be so, if you're going to throw us in, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You want to, you know what, we're here. Here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to bow. But we'll take the consequences, whatever they are, and continue to trust in our God. See that? Very different from the kind of stuff that sometimes goes on today uh, with our government. The unwavering obedience to God of these men, by the way, was honored by God because he saved them out of the fire. All right? So another way in which we worship God is through prayer, right? Right? Yeah, we worship God through prayer. Stick with me, stick with me, okay. Well, it was suggested to King uh, Darius, uh, a later Babylonian king, that uh, some men came to him and said, hey, we got an idea. Why don't you make a decree that for 30 days nobody gets to make a petition or request to any god or man except to you, king? Darius is like, oh, that's a good idea. I like that. And, uh, and if, if they do it, if they do it, king, we'll cast him into the lion's den. This was all uh, basically a conspiracy. They're after Daniel. These guys are after Daniel. They hate him. Uh, they hate the favor that he has with, with the current ruling and reigning government. And so they know this man's a man of God. They know that he prays. So this was all a conspiracy to get him thrown into the lion's den. And uh, Darius, he's just like, yeah, everyone should come to me and ask me, yeah, for 30, I like it. So, he, he, we're going to pick it up right there. Daniel 6, verse 10 and through 13. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, boom, it's law, okay? He went to his house. I just want, I want you to see something here. This is also not defiance. He, he knew it was signed, He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber up and open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So it's not like, oh yeah, you want to make a law? Check this out, I'm going to open the windows, you see me praying, huh? No, that's not what's going on. He simply, that he's, all they're saying is, they mentioned the windows, because that allows the other guys to have seen what he was doing in the first place. It says that he did what he had previously done. In other words, it had no impact on what he was going to do regarding his worship of the Lord. Yes, king, I understand you made the law, but I'm going to continue to worship God. So he went to the place that he did, and he prayed, just as he always had. You got me? All right. Then these men came by agreement, these evil men who created the conspiracy, verse 11, and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Of course they did, because they knew that's what he always did. They were, it was a trap. Then they came near and said before the king, concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. In other words, once I write it, you can't undo it. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes this petition three times a day. And uh, one writer was commenting that Daniel had lived for over 60 years now in Babylon. They were ripped out of their homeland. He's basically you know, been taken away, ripped away. He's in Babylon. But his loyalty to the rulers was well known. He was a loyal man. He subjected himself to those governing authorities, the very ones that ripped him out of their land. The king actually favored Daniel. That's why these guys were so upset. He liked him. He was in a position of power. So check it out, verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, he was distressed. And he set his mind to deliver Daniel. Oh my goodness, I made a law, and now Daniel, I didn't think this through. I'm a moron. I didn't think it through. Now Daniel has violated this law, and I'm going to have to throw him to the lions. So he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. But he can't. He can't. The law is the law. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, now, king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king, regrettably, you know, he didn't want to do this, commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually. That's right. You've given evidence of that. Regardless of what the law is, you won't stop serving your God. May he deliver you, Right? Now, verse 19, this story comes more alive, doesn't it? It's not just some guy thrown into a den of lions. There's really a lot here. Verse 19, then at break of day, the king arose and he went in haste. Yeah, I bet you he didn't sleep, right? So he went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, "Oh, Daniel, serve unto the living God has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions. Check this out. Then Daniel said to the king, Oh, you did not come calling on me. Are you serious? You left me in here to die? Look what Daniel says. O king, live forever. You see that? That is, what is that's a subjective spirit, beloved. May God send, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm he didn't do anything wrong he yes he disobeyed the governing authorities but he had every right to do so in that case because a higher authority called him to worship that authority that being god so he could not comply with the dumb decree of the king huh but beloved if the king would make another dumb decree but it wouldn't have required him to not be in subjection to god then he'd have to obey it you get me huh Finally, one more circumstance. I, you know, we're almost done. Because this is important. I want you to get it. One more circumstance which we would be required to disobey the governing authorities, and, and that is if they required us to behave or act immorally or to go against any moral command of the Bible. How do I know that? Another biblical example, Exodus chapter 1. I'll read it fast. Verse 8. You also know this story likely because Hollywood and Disney and stuff has made plenty of movies about it. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of people have biblical education from that alone. But I'm I'm hoping you actually read the story uh, also in the scriptures where it would be more accurate. Verse 8 Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Okay? Uh, That's like a clue, like, because Joseph was good with the king prior. This king is not going to be okay with Joseph. Okay? Remember. Uh, the people are in bondage. The Jewish people are in bondage in Israel. They're enslaved there. A new king comes to power, right? Just like every four years or every eight, depending, we get a new person uh, in charge in the White House. So here we go. new king comes to power. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, and they're too mighty for us. Uh, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. This is the king. Lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us, and they'll escape from the land. We can't have that because we're using them as slave labor. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, the Jewish people. They built for Pharaohs store sites, Pithom and, and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Ah! And the more they spread abroad. You can't stop God, fools. So, and the Egyptians were in dread of the... That's not there, it's just commentary. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, right? They're afraid, okay? They're afraid that they could potentially take over. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruth- ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And they're dying off, you know, just from that process. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, Jewish midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shifra and the other Puah. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall what? Kill them. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. What do you think they're doing? You know, wipe out the male pop. This is genocide, beloved. That's what this is. This is genocide. Still goes on today. They are wiping out the Jewish. They're taking out the line. Verse seventeen. But the midwives feared God bingo, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, beloved, there's a lot of commentary on that. That could be true that could be true. And, and maybe they walked a little bit slower when they knew, you know, but bottom line, they're given birth, and then the babies are secure and they can't do what they have to do. not it it's not necessarily a lie, but it worked, right? Verse 20 So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. He blessed them. They did nothing wrong. They disobeyed the king, but clearly they did nothing wrong. Why? Because the king was calling for genocide. Murder innocent baby boys. The bottom line is we must refuse to obey any law that would cause us to act immorally according to God's word. In connection with that, I would say that the government says to us that we, as a church or as an individual, have to call good that which God calls evil, then you, we, have a duty to disobey because that would require me to lie. And that would be immoral. Therefore, in obedience to God, we must always affirm the truth when it comes to homosexuality. It is sin. Period. It is not good. It is not natural. It is, it is not something our country or that our world should embrace. Rather, it is evil. And we cannot say otherwise, and I will not say otherwise. Not in a spirit of defiance, but because I must surrender myself first and foremost to the highest authority who has said what it is. It is sin. You see? You know what that means? That means, even if we're doing that, and we lose our tax-exempt status. Or for some reason they say, you, Summit Bible Church, you're going to keep saying that? You can't meet in this public facility. So be it. You see?
1: We'll skip the next slide.
0: Beloved, having covered all that truth, okay, all that on the matter, uh, the reality is for us in America, all right, For us in America, at least for now, we do not have to regularly decide or wrestle with the question, am I going to obey my government or obey God? Those three situations I gave you, at least for right now, we're not being pressed with that, okay? Uh, I still have the freedom, we're here, hello, to worship God. Okay? To make disciples of Jesus Christ, I have the right to pray. I'm not being asked to uh, uh, commit genocide. So, for instance, abortion is wrong. It is wrong, Okay, and our government has given approval to it. Evil. It's evil. That doesn't mean I, I can, I'm free to not obey any other law that they've given, but if they were to require us to begin to abort our children, that's where we would draw the line. Now, even though uh, we don't, we're not pressed with this, I believe that day is coming where this will become more of a reality for us. So I thought it'd be good to just make sure we cover uh, what the justifiable disobedience looks like. And maybe that day is coming sooner or later, but whether that day comes or not in your lifetime... What kind of people should we be according to God's word? And the answer is we are to be people who are characterized not by rebellion or disobedience. And that's the problem. And Chris was talking about it because, way down deep in that rottenness of our heart, that's where that thing lies disobedience, rebellion, self rule. It's sin, beloved. That is not, as new creatures in Christ, that is not how we are to be characterized. Rather, we should be characterized by submission. Submission. Humble and willful submission to our governing authorities and only refusing to obey when our submission to God, the highest authority, requires it of us. You with me? I hope I see you all tonight, beloved. I hope I see you all tonight. Big, big night for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We exalt you. You are the highest authority. We give praise for that. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, ruler, is coming again. And he will rule and reign in righteousness And Father, we long for that day. We long for that day. But until that day, may we recognize that the governing authorities that exist, as messed up as they are, they have been instituted by you. And to the degree that they do not ask us to do something that would force us to have to be disobedient to you, then we must obey. We must submit. We must be subject to them. Father, help us to do that. Help us to do that, Father. And, and bring to mind those times in our lives where we are, we are just kind of doing our own thing. Just not, not surrendering ourselves, not coming under the governing authorities that we intersect with on a daily basis. Kind of choosing and picking which laws that we want to obey. That should not be true for us, Father. So work in our hearts. Bring conviction, repentance, obedience. That we may glorify you, Father, and that it may go well with us. We love you. Bless your church. This is your church. In Jesus' name, amen.